What is it about life that is the older you get, the more time you spend looking back? Well, we found the same thing happens with podcasting. And as we've gotten better at this and our audience has gotten bigger, some of you might not have heard or found our early episodes. As we near 150 episodes, it can be a bit of a pain in the backside to scroll that far back in your app. So we're revisiting some of our early favorites, slightly edited, in a new regularly recurring series we call In Case You Missed It. Today's guest is David DeSola. He wrote the book Alice in Chains, The Untold Story, which is incredible. And welcome, David. Thanks for having me. As you know, I was admittedly just vaguely familiar with Alice in Chains. You know, I know a couple of their big hits. And then I knew most of the tragedy stories. And you have quite a unique background. It was one of the reasons I read this book. Can you fill our listeners in on your background? Well, uh, I mean, I'm a journalist by profession. Um, I've worked at CNN, 60 Minutes, and Reuters a couple times over the years in different capacities. Um, and I've got uh, two graduate degrees. So the way I approached this was sort of this mix of journalism and academia. Uh, in fact, I got the idea for the book while I was interning at 60 Minutes. Basically, what happened was <laughs> I was... Uh, I was uh, working uh, five days a week and I was going to class two nights a week. So I had a lot of work at the time. And one one of those nights when I had had a bunch of work at home, I, I put on the Dirt album for the first time in ages. And I was I just sort of rediscovered it that way after not hearing it for quite a, quite a long time. Uh, and this was in summer 2011. Uh, at that point, Lane had been dead for nine years. So I thought, oh, somebody's written something, right? They must have written something. And so I started looking around and I found nothing along the lines of what I was looking for. And so at that point, I had the utterly insane idea of doing it myself <laughs> while I'm finishing grad, while I'm doing grad school, while I'm working at, you know, five days a week at 60 minutes. Um, so that's how it started. You know, ultimately, when I decided to do this, it, you know, I was going to treat them like I'd be writing a book about, you know, like the historical figures they are rather than, than rock stars. Because I think some some of these rock bios, they're, they're a little too... I don't know. They're not they're not as as detached from their subjects as I think some of them should be. Gotcha. Well, that was one of the things that attracted me because I didn't know much about them and and I needed a guy like you to take me through a rather dark story. <laughs> but let's start with um, you know, kind of the birth of the band and what would become the grunge scene. And it was a youth movement overall, but I was really surprised at how young these guys were when they first started out in sleaze and a glam band and all that kind of thing. Well, but before we get to Allison Chains, I mean, just generally speaking about the, that whole Northwest, what would become the grunge scene later on, um, almost all of them were, you know, children of the mid-60s to early 70s. So they were born, uh, they sort of, they were kids in the 70s, they came of age in the 80s. Um, so there was a couple of things that, that happened in that period. They grew up on sort of, you know, your classic rock, if you will, you know, your Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or whatever. And then, you know, as they get older, you know, they discover, you know, Kiss in the 70s, Led Zeppelin, uh, bands like that. And then in the 80s, it's like this, that second generation of classic rock. You also see the MDUs of the MTV revolution and the bands that, that ushered in that era. Um, so all these things sort of start percolating and coming together, right? And so there's a bit of a, a generational divide between those guys and the ones that came before them, right? Um, now, getting into this, the, the community itself, I would say that, you know, grunge happened just because of a series of separate but mutually reinforcing factors. 
Uh, geography, I think, was a big one. In those days, as hard as it is to believe, today that Seattle was considered a small market, like a secondary or tertiary market. So it was, you know, small town. Uh, you're a couple hundred, if not thousand miles away from the closest big city in either direction, in any direction, south or, or east. Then you have weather. Uh, weather's uh, not that nice in Seattle for a good part of the year. So if it's raining outside, guess what? Bands will hold up in their basement or the practice room and they, they jam and they write songs. You know, there's uh, talent. There's, you know, basically a bunch of local musicians who are playing to themselves, for themselves, things that they like. There was an infrastructure there in the sense that you had local media, you had magazines like The Rocket. Um, you had live venues like the Grand Central Tavern and the Crocodile. Uh, you had recording studios. Uh, like London Bridge, you had uh, record labels like Sub Pop, add all that together and and something was going to happen. Um, I don't think there was any sort of master plan. It happened sort of organically. And I think one other thing I should note also is that I don't think any of them, whether it was Alice in Chains or any of the other bands from that period, I don't think any of them ever had any expectations for uh, commercial success. I mean, they did this because they loved it, and it was for their own their own personal enjoyment. Uh, I don't think anybody ever thought they'd make a they'd make a living out of it. I think uh, if you go listen to those early records, there's an innocence and an integrity to all those records from that period before uh, Nirvana blew up the whole scene in 1991. Right, right. And you mentioned MTV before, which probably had a lot to do with, you know, the popularity of glam and hair metal bands that these guys rose up through. Right. Yeah. So Lane, Lane was probably the one I was most able to document because there was audio and video and, and photography, uh, photos, extensive audio, video and photos of them. Um, I mean, if you look at the cover of their demo or like the, 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 the there was a T-shirt that they had made, whatever, and it's like a photo of all four band members and their hair is all poofed up, you know, they, you know, God knows how much hairspray they were using at the time, but, you know, it looks like the cover of the first Poison album, right? So the, the image and sound was certainly uh, influenced by, I guess, what was going on on, on Sunset Strip at the time. You know, the, the, his, his former bandmates all told me they were all Motley Crue fans, um, you know, to the extent that there, there was a common sort of point of reference or a target for what they wanted to be. It was Motley Crue. And you mentioned, uh, you know, Seattle was a small scene. So eventually, you know, Lane and, and Jerry Cantrell, you know, are playing with each other and, and then they have their own side projects, I think. And they get together with kind of a unique barter system. And then that even went through the changes in the name that would become Alice in Chains. Right. So Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley meet at a house party in Seattle in 1987. Um, what happened was that Lane's band, they started out as sleaze. They changed their name to Alice in Chains, like Guns in Roses, apostrophe N. And they were playing a show at a place called the Tacoma Little Theater. And Jerry Cantrell happened to be in the audience and he was he really liked Lane's voice in fact he said on the record later that you know I, I wanted to be in a band with that guy Lane's band uh, eventually ends um, so they're both sort of free agents Lane's got a different sort of industrial project at that point but Jerry wants to start another band they went through several different name ideas and ultimately just as like a sort of like a placeholder name they used Diamond Lie the name of Jerry's old band eventually Lane joins and at one point, I think they 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 decided you know the diamond lining was good enough, so they Lane asks for and receives permission from his former bandmates to use the Alice in Chains name, but they changed the name to Alice in Chains. Now, one advantage to that was the name was already known locally in Seattle, even though there was a personnel change. 
Delane was sort of the common element to both bands. And um, they had a, a modest hit that was sort of a crowd favorite at the time called Queen of the Rodeo. So having that name and performing that song, even though it predated this version of the band, was a bit of an advantage to them starting out right. in those, especially those early years. In 1990, the band releases their debut album, Facelift, and they beat Soundgarden and Pearl Jam to the punch. What did that album have to say about the grunge scene? Did it define it to outsiders in any way? But essentially, uh, Soundgarden were sort of, they were the first ones out of the gate, right? They formed in 85. They had signed and released a couple of EPs on independent labels. And in 1989, they released their major label debut, uh, Louder Than Love. In 1990 comes along, they're finishing up touring uh, that album, and they're about to go into the studio to work on the album that would become Bad Motorfinger. So Alice and Chains, they signed a deal in 1989, and their album is finished in 1990. So their album happens to come out at that point. Pearl Jam formed in 1990 because mother love bone singer Andy Wood died in March of that year. So within a couple of months, they they found Eddie Vedder in San Diego, and they were basically starting over from scratch. So Pearl Jam were still in their infancy at that point. So um, by virtue of circumstance and timing, Allison James puts out facelift in 1990. Um, even though Nirvana weren't part of this scene, um, they had already released Bleach at that point, which I think came out in 89 as well. And so and in 1990, they go into the studio to make Nevermind. It was just sort of a matter of just timing and circumstance that Facelift came out when it did. Uh, but all these bands are, are active at this point, and they're starting to create the songs and the albums that, that would make them famous. Um, as far as the significance of Facelift goes, it was definitely a, a new look and sound at least, at least a grittier look and sound uh, compared to what most of the stuff that passed for hard rock in that period. I mean, you have to remember it was sort of the waning days of hair metal. Yes, Guns N' Roses were huge at that point. And it's clear that these guys are, are very different from the other ones. I think if if I had to just describe it as anything, it would have been, I think, darker and grittier sonically and image-wise, if you look at their videos, than, than a lot of the stuff that was happening at the same time. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with David DeSola, the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. We Die Young, which was their first uh, single off of that album, and, and that's a really bleak song. But as bleak mm. as it is, that video, I went back and watched it, and that might even be darker. Yeah, well, lyrically, it was about, you know, young kids getting involved in gangs and violence and things in, in Seattle, things that, that things that were happening at the time when they were writing the album. So um, hence the, the title, you know, We Die Young. Um, and then the video, as I recall, it was there were a series of fires in the L.A. area. And um, so they got permission to go to this to go to this one family, this family's burned out house. You know, they used you know, the destruction and the, the debris and everything in the, the house and the yard and the swimming pool as part of the, the set. You know, it was already destroyed. And so they were able to, you know, put their own twist to it, you know, set it on set things on fire or thrusting into the pool or whatever i don't know but it was you know it was lyrically it was a pretty dark song and and you know the fact that they basically use this this poor family's you know burned out home as the set as the backdrop for it even though it has nothing to do with gang violence per se just uh, you know it was it was a you know it was not a happy video to, to say the least how much do you think mtv and videos played in the success of both this record the band and grunge in general Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. Um, I think, you know, at that point, you have to remember, I think MTV was about 10 years old at that point, give or take. Right. They had already shown that they could make or break a band uh, nationally if, you know, you put a video in heavy rotation. And in those days, you know, it's, it seems it might seem absurd for, you know, young kids today to think of, think of it this way. But in those days, period before the Internet and YouTube and streaming and DVD and all, these, all the stuff we have now, in those days, videos were uh, a heavy, a big part of the network's daily rotation. And so, I mean, whether it was, at, you know, five in the morning or four in the afternoon or, or primetime, nine o'clock at night. I mean, there was usually some sort of music based show that, that was on TV and, and bands would get some sort of exposure. My personal opinion is that I think grunge would have been popular even without it. Uh, think along the lines of a band like Iron Maiden, a band that you know would sell out stadiums, but they had little or no support from MTV or radio, right? right. But I think in, in in this case, MTV exposure was a a force multiplier. You know, you'd see these videos, they buy the records, they you know go to the shows. I think the other thing I would add also that 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 came to be hugely influential was Lollapalooza as well because right. a lot of these grunge alternative bands whatever you want to call them from this period all go out on this tour together for the first couple of years and it, it's a brand but also a sort of a culture and an aesthetic that really you know spoke to a generation that was coming of age at that point. Back to your original question, yes, MTV absolutely was hugely influential. I think to that generation, too, MTV effectively replaced radio that weren't really playing these songs, but you get the added bonus of actually seeing them. And, you know, obviously some concepts came into play, but it was kind of a win-win for that generation, I think. 
Man in the Box at this point is blowing up on MTV, and it's it's blowing up on radio as well. And the band is opening for Van Halen. One of my favorite bits in your book is the prank stories that you recall between the two bands. Can you share those with our listeners? Yeah, so Alice gets the uh, gets tapped to open for Van Halen in the I believe it's in the from between fall of '91 to early 1992, sort of off and on. There was a series of pranks going on between the band. I mean, I guess there's a sort of a tradition of the uh, headliner hazing the opener. Uh, so there's a, one particularly infamous case where the Van Halen people did uh, they pranked Allison Chains four times in one set. Uh, and according to the, uh, you know, my research, the, the pranks were, um, you know, they play the crew put strips of duct tape facing upward all over the stage. So they step on it and get tangled up and stuff. Right. Then, uh, at another point they hired a group of what were described as ugly strippers to go on stage, to join the band for a song. And then, and again, later on, another tech of another Van Halen tech came out on stage dressed as Little Bo Peep with an actual live sheep on stage for a song. And then when the band are playing their big hit, their uh, Man on the Box as the set closer, the Van Halen crew walk out and they just start breaking them down in the middle of the <laughs> song, right? They just, they unplug Mike Starr's bass cabinet. They uh, take, they, they start taking away Sean Kinney's drums. I mean, they leave them with like barely enough to finish the song uh, by the end of it. And so uh, the Allison Chains idea of payback was that Wayne and Jerry and Sean during the Van Halen set would walk out on stage wearing nothing but boots and um, these like Van Halen women's panties that were <laughs> being sold at the merch, at the merch stand on the tour. And uh, they walked out and they do this little sort of strut or walk that the Van Halen guys did. That was part of their act at the time. And uh, there, there's a photo of it's on the internet. If you look, if, if uh, people are curious, but it's pretty funny. I looked that up and it, it is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, in your book, there's a line, a great line, and it says, if there's a villain in this story, it would unquestionably be heroin. You mentioned earlier Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone, and that had a huge impact on the music community. But about this time, heroin arrives into the Alice in Chains scenes via Lane Staley. Is that right? Uh, uh, heroin gets into Alice in Chains because Lane starts using it. That's correct. But it had been creeping into the Seattle music scene sort of very gradually and quietly since the 1980s. Andy Wood, uh, the singer Mother Love Bone, who I mentioned earlier, he died of a heroin overdose. The, at that point, it was still sort of a quiet thing kept in close circles of the band. It wasn't public knowledge like Lane or Kurt Cobain later on, where it was you know pretty much an open secret. Uh, Andy's death was you know was devastating for the, the Seattle music community. Right at that time, nobody was famous. Grunge hadn't happened yet, so it was largely uh, confined locally within Seattle um, in terms of its its, its impact, immediate impact. On the other hand, his death would be to two things. It would lead to the creation of Pearl Jam and the formation of Pearl Jam. And his death would be the inspiration for a couple, a lot of the grunge hits like Alice in Chains Wood, uh, Candle Boxes Far Behind, and the uh, the Temple of the Dog album. There are two songs there in particular about him, Reach, just reach Down and Say Hello to Heaven. But on the other hand, uh, his death, it should have been a warning shot to this little community of musicians. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. Alice were finishing up facelift in Los Angeles, and they came back to Seattle for a quick break when Andy overdosed. So they were they actually happened to be in town when it happened. Um, they knew the Mother Love Bone 
band members and management personally. So that would really hit close to home. And, you know, unfortunately, Andy's death did not dissuade or discourage anybody from using heroin. I wasn't able to find out why Wayne chose to try drugs when he did. People he knew told me he was openly against it a couple years earlier. Um, Why he changed his mind, I don't know. I will say that in my research, I found that Lane, he had a high tolerance for drugs and alcohol. And I think once he got addicted to heroin, that was that was it for him. He had met his match and he, he would struggle with heroin addiction for the last decade or so of his life. So Demery Perot enters at this point as Lane's girlfriend. And unfortunately, she was down that road as well, correct? Uh, yeah. So Lane and Demery met. At some point in, I think, the spring or summer of 1988, they started dating not long after. So this is when Alice is still in its infancy at that point, right? But, um, you know, she was she was with them for the whole rise to stardom thing. At some point, she started using heroin. And uh, the story that I was told during the Van Halen tour, uh, they ran out of cocaine. And so then we went out looking for some and came back with heroin instead. And that's how he first tried it. And it it just didn't stop after that. So a little bit after this, and in the midst of all this, I guess I should say, in 1992, they released their second album, Dirt, which is the one that you mentioned you went back to and listened to. I listened to that, and it is so freaking bleak. And with tracks titled Junkhead and Godsmack and Down in a Hole, I'm just wondering, like fans, friends, management, the label, somebody must have raised an eyebrow and wondered what the heck was going on with the band, no? I mean, Dirt was an entirely different animal from Facelift. Lane's drug problem at this point was uh, an internal band issue, a secret at that point. But uh, worth keeping in mind that he had already been to rehab at least once by the time the recording sessions for Dirt began. I, I I should point out that Down in a Hole was written by Jerry, and it's not about drugs, even though the song is often misinterpreted as such, just because it just gets lumped in. It's in that album and it lumps into that whole sort of sequence. Now, there were, I think, three or four songs on there uh, with lyrics by Wayne that make explicit or implicit references to heroin. But, you know, there are other songs. I mean, Rooster was about Jerry's father in Vietnam. You know, Them Bones is just about death in general. These are all fairly bleak subjects to begin with. And even though it's not a concept record in the way that, like, say, like Dark Side of the Moon or Wish You Were Here is, um, they all fit together very nicely musically and thematically. Right. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're speaking with David DeSola, the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. It's a bit unclear also if Mike Starr, the bass player, is using during these sessions, but his slide out of the band had already begun. You know, he's demanding some of the songs that he wrote be recorded. I guess he probably wanted the publishing money, and the band just isn't into them. 
You mentioned when he's finally kicked out of the band, he had excuses and blackmail theories and that he quit rather than being fired. What's the real story there? Uh, all the Austin James guys had used drugs recreationally at some point or another, even before they were famous, before they got a record deal, including Mike Starr. Now, for my own research, Lane introduced Mike to her during one of the recording sessions for Dirt, uh, and Mike had an extremely negative reaction to it. Uh, he ran out of the bathroom, and he wound up throwing up on the carpet in the studio lounge. Now, there were three people there at the time, Lane, Mike, and Brian Carlstrom, the recording engineer who was working on the, with them on the album. And so Brian was the guy who told me the story and so And at the time, Lane and Mike were already dead. So ultimately, I only have his account of that event. Uh, besides the drugs, he's already having problems within the band. He had been caught scalping backstage passes and tickets uh, on the Van Halen tour by Van Halen security people. During the Dirt Sessions, he was pushing for a song that he had written called Fear the Voices to be included on the record, which is a song that he was working on during that session when he first tried heroin. It didn't make the cut for the album, but it did create this internal division where Jerry and Sean weren't really fans of it, uh, but Lane was. And so they, they do this recording. It doesn't make the album, but they sit on it, and it was later released as a single as part of the band's box set. There was also a couple of incidents of DVS behavior on his part on the road. Uh, and so you add all these up and a growing and escalating drug addiction uh, to the mix. And it's not surprising why he was fired. It, you know, he never accepted responsibility for his own actions. And the, the firing happens a couple months later in January of 93. They're in Hawaii. And I guess that's where Jerry, Lane and Sean tell him you're out of the band because they've been touring with, with Ozzy Osbourne. They knew Mike Inez, his bass player, and so that's that was there was never an audition. They just we want that guy to be our bass player. And uh, Mike plays the last two shows at these festivals in in Brazil, and he goes home, and that's it. The band goes to Europe, and they meet with Mike Inez. They rehearse for a couple of days. They got to give him a crash course in the Alice in Chains catalog, and they spend the rest of 1993 pretty much touring nonstop. So that's the end of Mike Starr's role in Allison Chains. Yeah, that's that's that probably contributed to the darkness, that's for sure. And Lane is meanwhile, he's sinking deeper into addiction, but somehow still finds time for Mad Season, which I'm not sure if a grunge supergroup is the right term, but it was a project that featured Lane, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam and the drummer from Screaming Trees. Yes. So this is in the I guess in the spring or summer of ninety four. Allison Chains had released Jar of Flies, the acoustic EP, and it went straight to number one. First time an EP had ever done that in history. And they're making plans to tour in the summer of 94. Uh, uh, they had an opening slot to do stadium shows with Metallica, and they had a spot at Woodstock 94. So they're rehearsing for this tour, and Lane shows up to practice one day, and he's obviously under the influence. So at that point, they just the band says, stop, we're not doing this. And um, they they pull out of all of their commitments uh, for that that summer, all their tour plans. At this point, Allison Chains sort of goes on hiatus. But anyway, during this period, Mike McCready started what would become the Mad Season Band and album. Um, you know, he would show up at Lane's house, play him a little thing he, he had written on a guitar, and see if Lane could write some lyrics to it. You know, he had met this guy, John Baker Saunders who was about 10 years older than him, and he'd met him in rehab. He moved out to Seattle with Mike, and uh, he was the, he'd be the bass player. I don't know whose idea it was to get Barrett Martin as the drummer, but that's how that band comes together. They made one album, 
they only played like four or five shows locally in Seattle. They never toured. Well, meanwhile, you know, rumors are flying about Lane. He has AIDS. His fingers had to be amputated from drug use. And in 1995, famously, Rolling Stone does a story supposedly on the band, but it features only Lane on the cover. And the headline reads, The Needle and the Damage Done. Where are the band at this point, you know, commercially, reputation-wise, management, label, all that kind of thing? Uh, by the mid-90s, uh, the rumor mill about Lane is pretty much out of control. I mean, his, his heroin use is a, pretty much a well-documented fact. Um, you know, it's, it's everything from, you know, AIDS to his, you know, missing fingers or missing an arm or whatever because of, you know, his veins collapsed or whatever. he's starting to become a recluse, right? He's not going out much. He's not, you know, doing press. He's not, he's he's, he's starting to fade out of the public eye. Uh, For what it's worth, um, all of these rumors are pretty much erroneous. I found out from my own research that he didn't have AIDS and he wasn't missing any any digits or limbs or whatever. Uh, Although I was able to confirm that he did have hepatitis C, presumably a result of his intravenous drug use. At this point, Allison Chains had made their self-titled third album, a.k.a. the Dog Album, because of the three-legged dog on the cover, which should tell you a lot about where the band was at that point. And they did very limited press and a couple of TV appearances in support of it because of the very uncomfortable and legitimate questions that would be asked about Lane's health. But anyway, they agreed to be interviewed for a Rolling Stone cover story. The, the agreement was that the story was going to be about the band and the album, not Lane or whatever his problems were. If you read the story, you know, it's a fairly rounded and nuanced portrait of a band that they made this album and they're going through these issues. You know, it's a pretty well-rounded portrait, a snapshot of where the band is at that point in time. The cover, on the other hand, is a uh, entirely different issue. The, uh, you know, scene straight out of Almost Famous, if you remember that movie, the magazine puts a picture of Lane by himself on the cover and the caption reads, the needle and the damage done a uh, reference to the Neil Young song about heroin of the same name. Uh, needless to say, nobody in the band or the management or the label was happy about this. I mean, it, it wasn't intentional. Um, I guess some editor thought it would be clever. So in 1996, Alice and Chains played their last show. And then shortly thereafter, I guess uh, Lane dies at the age of 35 What I found surprising is, you know, everybody knows this story, but it was two weeks before anybody went to go look for him. Alice's third album was released in late 1995. It enters the charts at number one. Again, no plans to tour at this point. And I think in April of 96, they do MTV Unplugged. And a couple months later, they agreed to do a small number of stadium shows for Kiss, who had just gotten back together with the original lineup. Um, And then, so those were the band's last shows with Lane. And um, after the last show in Kansas City in July of 96, uh, Lane overdosed. There's video of this last show. I mean, he looks and sounds great and performing well. They played the hits. They played some of the new songs. Um, You know, they took a bow. And, you know, literally after that, at some point after that show, he overdosed. Um, He passed away in April 2002. And as you said, his body was discovered about two weeks after the fact. Again, from what I read and from what I was told, so not seeing him for long stretches of period of time was actually quite normal to people, right? Now, what was the tip off that something was wrong was that his accountants 
uh, noticed that there was no activity on any of his bank accounts, right? Because they're getting his statements and paying his bills and whatever. So there was, when they noticed that the activity on the bank stopped, uh, that was the red flag. And so they told management. Uh, Susan Silver called and told his parents and said, you know, we think this is a family issue. Um, his mom and his stepfather went over to the building and they called the police to open to, to go check on him. And they were the ones who found the body. Yikes. Um, we're speaking with David DeSola, the author of a deeply researched book, Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. You know, if there's a good guy or a guy to root for in this story, it had to be Jerry Cantrell, the guitar player, at least to me. While he had issues of his own, he put out several solo albums and toured behind them. You know, he just kind of kept moving forward. Well, yeah. Well, Jerry's had uh, his own substance abuse issues at the time as well. Um, and he ultimately, uh, I think in, I think it was in 2003 that he went to rehab for them and he's, uh, he's been sober ever since, you know, he, he was successful and, and fortunate in ways that Lane wasn't by, you know, the late nineties, House of Chains is on hiatus. He doesn't want to stop writing and recording new music. So he offs for a solo career, you know, and in my, my, in my personal opinion, if Lane had managed to remain healthy and sober, those two Jerry Cantrell solo albums may well have turned into Alice in Chains records. Right. I think Jerry has said this publicly. The only reason he went solo in the solo group was because the Alice in Chains was not working and the, the, the band was was on hiatus. So that's, that's all he knew how to do, and that's how he chose to, to cope with his situation. Um, right. Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart keep popping up in the story, and, and it's a session with them that they would meet William Duvall, would later become Lane's replacement in a newly reformed Alice in Chains. Isn't that correct? Um, so as far as um, Alice in Chains 2.0, Alice uh, had regrouped in, I think it's 2006, with William at the helm. And uh, they were performing a VH1 special honoring Hart. And so as part of the show, Anne was supposed to join the band to sing Rooster. Long story short, she was late to a sound check, so William started filling in. She listened, and she's like, no, 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 you do it. And by doing so, it basically ensured that Williams would make the cut. So that was considered a hugely significant moment in the history of the band, which um, Susan Silver compared to what Chris Cornell had done for Eddie Vedder a decade earlier, which was basically giving his blessing to the new guy. So here was Anne doing the same thing to William years later. Well, it is a it is a dark story, and let's end on a positive note because against all odds, Alice and Change would rise again with Duval as the lead singer and the rest of the the band who survived. Their comeback album goes to number five on the Billboard charts. That that's just amazing, isn't it? So Lane died in two thousand two. They got back together in two thousand five to do a tsunami benefit, of three surviving band members, and a revolving door of guest singers, mm -hmm. right, to do the show that raised money for the the tsunami recovery in, in Southeast Asia. That's when they sort of get the idea that, okay, maybe we can do this again. Jerry had toured with William as a solo act because William was the singer and guitar player in a band called Comes With a Fall. And so Jerry took them out on tour as the opening act, and then they would be his backing band for his solo set. So at that point, they had already toured and performed together. Uh, so he was already a known quantity, to at least to Jerry. So they get back together. Uh, with William, they do a tour, 
and then just to ease into it, and then they decided to make this new album. The fact that they made the album, that it was received as well as it was, and that they continue to be an active band recording new material instead of just being um, you know, a legacy act shows how much that their new music even still resonates with people. I think uh, part of that thinking, I think, from Jerry was that you know a lot of fans weren't able to see Alice in Chains the first time around because if you remember... They stopped touring with Lane after 1993, with the exception of a handful of shows. Right. So right. this gave them an opportunity to perform those songs again and introduce the band to a new audience that didn't get to see them the first time around. Right. It's it's 15 plus years later, and um, and they can still come back uh, and do number five on the Billboard charts. Yeah, there were a couple of hits on that record too. So yeah, it, 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 it holds up. Music holds up. Well, thanks, David DeSola. Um, you were probably the perfect guide for a newbie like me into Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. It's a, it's a deeply researched, great book for fans out there. I, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, 400 plus pages on a band I knew very little about. And that's a testament to uh, to you and the and the book. It's, it's great. Thank you, David. Thank you, Steve. Well, thanks for going backwards in time with us for this episode of In Case You Missed It. We're going to try and keep this going every other week. And don't forget, if your app only shows you 20 episodes or so at a time, check out our brand new mobile-friendly website, allmusicpodcast.com, where all of our shows are instantly available at your fingertips. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.